going to really mess me up this morning. Some of you, I know where you sit, and I look at you because I know you'll be awake. <laughs> well, we're nearing the end of Paul's letter to Timothy, his son in the faith. Paul is kind of passing the baton of ministry to a young man that he's mentored for a number of years. Timothy's the one who will teach and shepherd that next generation of Christian disciples. So Paul is urging him to to stand strong in his faith in a world of increasing compromise. Compromise is a lot like the common cold. It's very contagious. And the more you're around people who are infected with compromise, the more likely you are to catch it yourself. So Paul tells Timothy to, to be set apart Don't get distracted by all the the cultural trends. Don't compromise your faith in order to fit into the crowd. Don't get lost in selfish pursuits, but be set apart from the world around you. Remember what God has done on your behalf. Remember how you came to faith through the influence of your mom and your, your grandmother, people that he placed in your life. Don't lose sight of the importance of those who have been invested in your life. And more importantly, don't lose sight of the one who gave his life. Center your life on Christ. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Then as Carrie talked about last week, he tells Timothy, always be prepared. He wanted Timothy to ground his life in the truth of God's word. Using the Bible to teach what is good, what is right, what is true. Trusting scripture to to reprove rebellion, to, to correct misunderstanding, to train us to live a godly life so that God's people can work walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand. His word is a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And I believe that everything that Paul has been saying up to this point leads to our passage this morning where he says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you. Now that sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? It sounds like it's intentional, that there's purpose behind those words. And that's very, very true. In fact, I believe that everything that Paul has written up to this point is a preamble to what he will now say. You see, if Timothy compromises, there is no charge from Paul. If he does not rely on God's word, it's no longer relevant. Timothy's character is a prerequisite to Paul's charge. Apart from faithfully following Christ, it simply doesn't apply. Everything we do must flow out of what God has done in us. It's our life. It's who we are. There's a statement that I ran across this week from a fairly popular pastor in a very large church, and this is what he had to say. Listen closely. He said, I'm pretty sure that a smart, productive atheist could do my job well. See, this pastor came to the understanding that much of his success was built on his talents and his abilities. If if he led confidently, if he thought strategically, if he cast an exciting vision 
for his church, that he could, bef- he could build a successful ministry, and none of it required that he even know Christ. And I want you to know something. He's right. He is absolutely right. If you judge success from the world's point of view. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. He bases success on a biblical perspective. That's not based on what I accomplish. It doesn't depend on my gifts and abilities. Everything Paul has written has focused on faithfulness as God's measurement of success. Everything we do must depend on what God has done in us, not what we do for him. So please understand that the charge that Paul gives to Timothy applies equally to you and I. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are called to live for Christ in a sin-cursed world. So go ahead and turn to chapter 4, verse 1, and I want you to do something. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I charge you. Above the word you, I want you to write your name. It's okay. You can write in your Bible. I encourage you to do so. Above the word you, write your name. I solemnly charge you, Todd, Graham, Russ, Jan, write your name there. Because what Paul says next applies to you just as much as it did to Timothy. Okay? Before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you please personalize what was written to Timothy to speak to us? We know that that's possible because your word is living and active, relevant in every age, in every life. And so as we come to your word this morning, may we do so humbly, hearing and listening to what you have to say to our hearts so that our lives might conform to your ways, that we might follow you where you lead, that your word really would be a lamp unto our feet, a a light unto our path, and help us to faithfully follow that way. Father, we love you. And we want to walk faithfully. Will you teach us this morning how to do that well? We pray this in your name. Amen. So you're already there. Chapter 4, verse 1 of 2 Timothy. Let's read together what Paul says. It says, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. I'm going to stop there because I want us to unpack what he just said. It's the basis of of his charge, and it's essential for us to understand whatever he says next. What Paul writes to Timothy is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So that means that the words that Paul writes are with divine authority. And it's based on three very important conditions. The judgment of Christ, the appearing of Christ, and the kingdom of Christ. He says at the beginning, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. What Paul says here is a complete reflection, a restatement of what Jesus said in the midst of his ministry. 
It's in John chapter 5, beginning on verse 22. Listen to what he says in the midst of his ministry. Jesus speaking says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. In order that all who all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now listen to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. That's why Paul says, this is the basis of his charge, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. That's just what Jesus said. Jesus is the judge, and his judgment is based on our belief. That's what he just said. And we must all give an account. But I want you to notice, it says that all those who believe in Jesus will not be judged at all. They are exempt from judgment. But I want you to be puzzled by that and, and ask yourself, how is that possible? Because all of Scripture says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says that no one is exempt. That we all stand guilty before the throne. So how can anyone be exempt if we are all guilty? The answer is this. The only way we are not judged is if we believe that Jesus took our judgment upon himself. That he who knew no sin became sin, our sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If we believe that Jesus died the death we should have died, if we believe that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our sins, that the punishment that we deserved fell upon him, then the scripture is clear. By his wounds, we are healed. The Bible says that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. We don't earn God's favor. We don't deserve God's forgiveness. We are saved by grace through faith. That's the promise of Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to consider how absolutely liberating that really is. The judgment of Jesus Christ has set me free. It has set me free from the power of sin. It has set me free to no longer be a, a slave of guilt. I am free to serve with a clean conscience and a sincere heart. Now, if that's what you believe, then it should radically transform how you live. For Timothy... This becomes the driving force of his ministry. If Jesus took his judgment, then Timothy doesn't have anything to prove. He is adequate and equipped for every good work.
Because God has prepared the good works beforehand that he should walk in them. His one job is to be faithful. And God will do the rest. Because God withholds nothing if he gave everything through his son. Think about that. That testimony of what Jesus accomplished on the cross says something about the life we live in him. In that if God is able to sacrifice his son and give it all, then that tells us he is not willing to withhold anything else from us. Now, this is a really familiar verse, but based on what we just said, would you please just listen? Sit back and let these words soak in based on what God has accomplished. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died, rather, yes, who has been raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all things we are overwhelmingly conquered. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a liberating truth. And if that's what we believe, it should transform how we live. And if that's not motivation enough, look at how Paul continues in chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who took the judgment on our behalf, the judge of the living of the dead, and by his appearing, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. That's a promise. And his appearing is the promise of his return. This is what should motivate us to to remain faithful. We want to be found ready when he returns. We want to anticipate his return. Because our faithfulness says something about our anticipation. Think about it this way. When you have someone important coming to your home, what do you do? If, If you have a special guest, maybe somebody that you haven't seen in a long time coming to your home who's going to stay with you, what do you do? You make sure things are in order, right? You make sure the room's picked up, that the, the, the bed is made, that there's clean sheets for them to, to sleep in. Because what you want them to know is we're so glad you're here. We've been anticipating your arrival. We're so glad you're here. The condition of your house says something about the importance of your guest. And the very same thing is true as it relates to Christ. We want our house to be in order. We want our life to be in order because we want Jesus to know we've been looking forward to your arrival. We couldn't wait for you to get here. 
Paul wants Timothy to serve with a hopeful anticipation. Because anticipating Christ's return is a motivation to be faithful when, he here, when he's here. We're liberated by sacrifice. We're motivated by his return. And we're encouraged by his kingdom. Look at that last part. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. In this world, it's a promise. We will have trouble. But in his kingdom, we will have eternal peace. In this world, there is pain and suffering. In his kingdom, there is no more grieving. There is no more tears. In this world, we struggle with sin. In his kingdom, there is no sin. In this world, we struggle against evil influences that draw us away from Christ. In his kingdom, that evil has been destroyed and we live eternally in the presence of Christ. Our hope is fixed squarely on the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And our goal in life is not to build our own kingdom. But we live in anticipation of his kingdom. Our goal in life is not to make a name for ourselves. Our goal in life is to make his name known. This world is not our home. His kingdom, that's our home. And that should be motivation. Do you see how important it is to understand that one verse as the basis of Paul's charge to Timothy? He wants him to know that he should build on this foundation of truth. Fix his eyes on Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, who will come again and who will establish his kingdom forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is the foundation of our faith. And Paul's charge will apply to us just as much as it did to Timothy. That's the basis. Now let's look at the substance. Look at verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. We're not trying to build our own kingdom. We don't depend on our own wisdom and truth. The truth of God found in his word is what guides our life. So Timothy, preach the word. And he's not just talking about Sunday, sermons on Sunday morning because he says when it's in season or out of season, when it's convenient, when it's not convenient. In other words, look for teachable moments that apply God's word to everyday life. Reminds me of that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that we have talked about often when we talk about family ministry. Let me read that to you again. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 says, And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall uh, talk to them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way when you lie down when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand that they may be frontals to your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts on the house of your gates the idea is that the, the the word of god should should just sink into every part of your life you see the reality is teachable moments are often much more powerful than a prepared sermon. Teachable moments are much more powerful than a prepared sermon. 
the last few weeks, I've been doing interviews with people who are uh, preparing to be baptized. And we're walking through that together. It's one of the things that I love most about what I do as a pastor here is I get to hear those stories. And without exception, whether I'm talking to a young a man or woman or an older adult, uh, very often, especially if they grew up in a Christian home, their story has something about a conversation they had with their parents one night when they were getting tucked into bed or when they were driving down the road or when they were walking on the trail. Those teachable moments that just come out of nowhere when, when those questions from the back seat, hey, Dad, I was wondering, that's when their minds are thinking and considering But here's something we need to understand. We can only guide others with God's word when God's word is guiding us. We can only guide others with God's word when God's word is guiding us. So when those teachable moments happen, the only way that we're prepared is if when we spend time in his word and God, by his divine wisdom, allows those opportunities to share God's word, so that we can lead them to an understanding of God's love. And that's what Paul is talking about. Look at how he continues in verse 2. He says, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. You know, as I think about this, and as I have gotten to know Timothy a little bit as we've gone through our letter together, I think he probably needed to hear this. Because I think Timothy is timid by nature. I think he's easily discouraged. Maybe prone to doubt, likely intimidated by this church in Ephesus that he is called to serve. And I get it. Because as I've told you before, I'm a lot like Timothy. When I first began preaching at Millie Park, I was scared to death. Even today, I get little butterflies in my stomach because I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I know that I'm speaking to people who have lived life and who know truth much deeper than I ever could. At this point in time. And I have to be careful. Because sometimes I feel like it's my job to say something significant. Something that will have a meaningful impact in another person's life. But there's something that I've realized over time and it's this. That's not my job. Preach the word, Todd. And let the word do its work. Preach the word. And let the word do its work. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. Put your confidence in the power of God's word. You serve best through your weaknesses, not through your strengths. Because it's in your weaknesses that you rely on his provision. It's when you depend on him. It's when you have to put your trust in him. So that what you say is, Lord, if this is going to have any impact at all, you're going to have to do it. Because it cannot come from me. So serve with great patience and faithful instruction. The truth of God will reprove. The truth of God will rebuke. The truth of God will exhort. Not you, Timothy. In fact, if we think it's our job to bring conviction, then our heart is not in the right place. This past week, I had a conversation with Adam Barrera, and he's in a new job was already confronted with some difficult situations with some employees, and one employee in particular, it had kind of escalated to the point where they were going to have to have a conversation with uh, HR, and uh, 
it's really a cut and dry situation. The guy just wasn't showing up for work. But Adam said, man, I have butterflies in my stomach. And I told Adam, I said, hey, that's a good sign. That's a sign of humility. He said, when those butterflies are gone, that means you're probably leading with pride. So thank the Lord for those butterflies. Lead with humility. Just so you know, I still get butterflies. And I'm still learning to put my trust in God's word and not mine every Sunday. I have to rely on that passage in Hebrews that we all know. It says this, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living, it's active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, we don't possess the ability to know what's in another person's heart. But God does. It's not our job to reprove or, or to rebuke. But God will. Our job is to share God's word. And then let his word do its work. Don't be quick to confront. But at the same time, don't avoid confrontation either. Because being a people pleaser can be just as dangerous because it can prevent us from speaking the truth at all. We don't want to offend someone, so we don't say anything. Well, let me tell you something. Withholding the truth is one of the most unloving things we could ever do for someone else. We're called to speak the truth in love, in season and out of season, when it's convenient and when it's not. It's our goal to learn to live and to share how to apply God's word to everyday life. And remember, we can only guide others when God's word is guiding us. We're speaking out of what we're learning to apply ourselves. We possess no authority apart from the authority of God's word. Look at how Paul continues in chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away from their ears from truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul wants Timothy to stay true to God's word because he knows many will not. Instead, they will shape their message according to what they believe their audience wants to hear. And I want you to notice, it's the audience who is promoting the speaker. Look again at verse 3. It says, they will accumulate teachers according to their own desires. False teachers are promoted by blind followers. Instead of convicting truth, they just want their ears tickled. They want their emotions stirred, but don't mess with the heart. It's a message that affirms what they want to be true, that conforms to their way of life. So instead of the word shaping them, they shape the word. They look for impressive preachers. Those that are cool, cutting edge. Jason showed me a little parody this week of, uh, based on the show House Hunters, but they were church hunters. 
and uh, their realtor was showing around to the different churches and highlighting what might draw them to that particular church. And in one church, they walk in and they said, hey, this church is really progressing. The pastor's actually untucking his shirt now. He's past the Joel Olstein full suit, but he hadn't gone full giglio yet. He wears jeans that are frayed, but no official holes in them so far. It's funny because it's true. We want to be something, we want to be a part of something that's cool and, and cutting edge, where the music is, is upbeat and entertaining. And, and the bigger the show, the better. Because that's what it's all about. Experience takes priority over content, and truth is left behind. If your ears are not listening for truth, then it's very likely that you will end up believing lies. Paul calls them myths, but it's the same thing. What is a myth? It's an entertaining story, but it is not true. That's a myth. It's my opinion that in the last days, we are likely to have some of the greatest, biggest churches the world has ever seen while at the same time suffering from a famine of truth. We must be careful not to judge truth based on the popular choice. In fact, if you look at Scripture, that's not a good path to follow. The crowds typically weren't right. In fact, it was the crowd who called for the crucifixion of Jesus. So we must not compromise our message in order to compete with the crowds. That's why Paul tells Timothy, be sober in all things. It's the idea of controlling your emotions, of managing your zeal. It's the refusal to make comparisons as a, as a judgment of what success might look like. So that if we're not drawing large crowds, if we're not writing books, then something must be wrong. We wrongly believe those things. Remember, faithfulness is God's measurement for success. So endure hardship. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry. Your ministry, Timothy, right there in Ephesus. Your ministry. Those are the people God has called you to serve. Shepherding a church is not a, uh, a profession. It's a calling to certain people at a certain place at a certain time. I can remember when Roger and the elders first approached Terry and I to consider praying about serving as a teaching pastor here at Melanie Park. Talked to a lot of people, and one of the people I talked to asked me this question. They said, do you feel like you uh, are called to serve at any church or just Melanie Park? And their thought was, I needed to be compelled to preach anywhere as a confirmation of that's what God was calling me to do. I just didn't see it that way. Because I believe that God was calling me to a specific people at a specific place at a specific time. And the reason I think that's important is because when it gets hard, I don't go looking for a job somewhere else because this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm called to be a pastor at Melanie Park Church. And so when it gets hard, we just work through it. When it gets messy, we stay the course because this is where God has called us to be. And I want you to think about what that looks like in your own life. Because being faithful to your calling is what galvanizes your commitment. So, men, that woman that you're married to, that's your calling. 
That's the woman you were called to sacrificially love. That's your place of ministry. Parents, those kids in your home, that is your primary mission field. That is your calling. That is your place of ministry. And if you're single, don't be looking for what God has next and miss out on what God has now. Be faithful to where he has you right now. See, God wants us to be faithful wherever we are, in our job, in our home, in our marriage. You have a ministry that matters in the eyes of God. It's your calling. And don't get caught up on that word, calling. Because all that means is simply to be committed to being faithful to God wherever he has you at any given moment. Always looking to God's word to guide your life. Living in the moment and not looking for something else. The charge that Paul gives to Timothy applies equally to you and I. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are called to live faithfully for Christ in a sin-cursed world. We should preach the truth every single day in how we live and in what we say. You'll notice every song we sing is a proclamation of the truths that we believe. Our gathering here together is an evidence of what we believe to be true. It is the basis of our fellowship with one another. We look for teachable moments to apply God's word in everyday life. Why? Because God's word has ultimate authority in our life. It's not something that we control or filter to our liking. We don't accept some things and reject the others. When we hear a sermon, when we read God's word, we surrender our opinion to what he has to say. We submit to his guidance instead of going our own way. Our life should be a testimony of God's greatness because we are adequate and equipped for every good work. We are liberated by a sacrifice, motivated by his appearing, encouraged by his kingdom. We are focused on faithfulness as the measurement of God's success. Faithful in ministry wherever you are right now. That's what we're called to. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the relevance of your word. That that charge that Paul gives to Timothy applies to every single person here this morning. Myself included. Father, help us to, to put our trust in your word and the guidance that it gives and not the opinions of the world around us. We want to be set apart as a people of God who are faithful to follow where you lead. Help us to consider how to encourage one another to love and good deeds, to be faithful, to, to guide others as we are being guided by your word, to be, to be able to love others out of the love that we experience through our walk with you. Father, I pray that our lives are an ongoing testimony of your truth, that we preach the word every day in how we live and in what we say. I pray that we would be faithful 
in the places of ministry, in our marriages, in our homes, in our jobs, wherever you have us right now. Please help us not to lose sight by looking ahead for something that might be or should be or may be, but help us to focus on what is now and that we can be faithful to where you've called us in this moment in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. We anticipate your kingdom. We're not building our own. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for loving us and all patience and kindness. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.